From the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief, with this week's Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. I've chosen three articles to talk about today. They were all recently published in JAK. The first one deals with medications for cardiovascular disease in pregnancy. The next is a brief update of the guideline for the management of patients with uh, atrial fibrillation. And the third is a subsequent analysis of the Odyssey Outcomes Trial, looking at both fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular events in patients treated with alirucumab after ACS. So the first one deals with the use of medications for cardiovascular disease during pregnancy. And this is a really nice review that was published this week in JAK. So I wanna just hit the key points that we need to remember as we consider cardiovascular drugs in uh, women who are pregnant. Obviously, the first thing to say is that the various hemodynamic and physiologic adaptations occurring in pregnancy could alter drug therapy. And a lot of what we know about medication safety is drawn from observational studies and expert opinion. There aren't many, if any, randomized trials in this space. Uh, You recall that the uh, FDA has a classification system called ABCDX, which uh, labels the relative safety for medications. There's also something called the Pregnancy and Lactation Labeling Rule, PLLR, which is intended to provide more information about the data in terms of breastfeeding. So let's start with arrhythmias. Generally, we want to avoid antirhythmic drugs as much as possible in the first trimester and use the lowest effective dose. Amiodarone should be avoided due to excess risk of fetal thyroid and neurodevelopmental problems. SVTs, manage those with vagal maneuvers. The next agent would be adenosine, beta blockers, and verapamil would be third line. Beta blockers with or without DIG, oral verapamil, can be used for suppressive therapy for SVT in patients who do not have pre-excitation. Sotolol or flecainide could be considered in the absence of structural heart abnormalities. In WPW, the guideline recommends flecainide or propafenone. For atrial fibrillation or flutter, they can be treated with beta blockers, verapamil, and digitalis. Sotolol, flecainide, and propafenone can be considered if rhythm control is needed. IV procainamide is the recommendation for atrial fibrillation in the presence of pre-excitation. So beta blockers are used frequently for the treatment of several cardiovascular conditions in pregnancy. And so far, large retrospective studies don't show an association of beta blockers with major congenital abnormalities in the child. They are associated with intrauterine growth restriction and increased risk of preterm birth, neonatal bradycardia, and hypoglycemia. Atenolol is generally not recommended due to a perception that it increases the risk of fetal growth. Digoxin can be used during pregnancy. One note, the assay for measuring digoxin levels during pregnancy can be falsely elevated due to circulating digoxin-like fragments. Antirhythmics. Flecainide can be used during pregnancy. Adverse effects include maternal visual disturbances, prolongation of the maternal QT interval, prolongation of the neonatal QT interval, and in high doses, heart failure. Also, cholestasis of pregnancy and decreased heart rate variability in the fetus have been observed. 
propafenone, limited data for that. Sotalol, recall that there's an increased risk of torsade de point due to QT prolongation, and we generally don't use this drug for women if we can avoid it. Ventricular tachycardia, obviously electrocardioversion if there's hemodynamic instability. Lidocaine or beta blockers can be considered. The ASC guidelines in this space recommend procainamide, flecainide, or sotalol. Again, amiodarone should not be used if at all possible. Hypertension. The placenta does not auto-regulate blood flow. Therefore, if you lower the blood pressure too much in the mother, this can cause fetal distress. First-line agents for chronic or gestational hypertension include labetalol, nifedipine, and methyl dopa. Dose reduction may be needed in the second trimester when there's a drop in the mean blood pressure. Be aware that diuretics can cause placental hypoperfusion. Heart failure. Beta blockers can be used, and remember, digoxin can be considered. Diuretics can be used for pulmonary edema, but excess dosing carries the risk of placental hypoperfusion and fetal electrolyte abnormalities. During pregnancy, hydralazine plus nitrates can be used for afterload reduction. Remember that ACE inhibitors and ARBs are contraindicated. So ACE, ARB, direct renin inhibitors, angiotensin receptor, neprilysin inhibitors, spironolactone, oplerolone, they're all contraindicated. Enalapril, captopril, and benazapril can be considered after delivery in a mother who's uh, lactating. Statins are generally thought to be contraindicated during pregnancy. Gemfibrozil, phenofibrate, and azetamide are also considered potentially teratogenic. Anticoagulation for mechanical valves. Well, this is an important topic. Embryopathy, miscarriage, and stillbirth are more common with daily doses of warfarin above 5 milligrams. So in these patients, the thought is women should switch to low molecular weight heparin or unfractured heparin by the end of the sixth week of gestation to decrease the risk of warfarin embryopathy. Remember that low molecular weight heparin does not cross the placenta. Meticulous monitoring of peak and trough anti-tetan A levels need to be followed in these patients. And the transition time between warfarin and low molecular heparin is an especially important time for valve thrombosis and thromboembolic risk, and it needs to be managed properly. And generally, women who are receiving warfarin should be changed to low molecular heparin or unfractionated heparin at 36 weeks gestation to reduce the risk of fetal hemorrhage and maternal bleeding at the time of delivery. Remember that regional anesthesia can't be given within 24 hours of the use of low molecular weight heparin. And in general, in a woman who arrives in labor while on warfarin, the recommendation is C-section. Reversal of warfarin with vitamin K in the mother does not ensure reversal in the fetus. Other things to consider, low-dose aspirin is considered safe during pregnancy and lactation and is commonly used in patients who have preeclampsia. High-dose aspirin should not be used in pregnancy for fear of premature closure of the ductus arteriosus. Clopidogrel, there's limited data, and so the recommendation is to use as short as possible, and it needs to be stopped seven days prior to neuraxial anesthesia, such as uh, epidural in patients who are going to be delivering. So this is a nice key points of the use of cardiovascular agents in uh, pregnancy, and I thought that would be useful. Now let's go to the uh, 2018 uh, focused update of the guideline for the management of AFib. 
And just a couple of key points with this document. First, edoxaban is another anti-10A agent that is now added to our list. The current recommendations now say that the newer oral anticoagulants or the direct-acting anticoagulants are recommended over warfarin, except in patients with moderate to severe mitral stenosis or a prosthetic heart valve. The decision to use an anticoagulant should not be influenced by whether or not the AFib is paroxysmal or persistent. Remember, we always want to check renal and hepatic function before the initiation of a NOAC, and generally want to do that at least annually after that. In AF patients with CHADS-VAS scores greater than 2 in men and greater than or equal to 3 in women, and a creatinine clearance of less than 15 ml per min or who are on dialysis, the anticoagulation choice there is warfarin or apixaban. Remember, we have reversal agents now. We have, I love this name, idereucisumab to reduce the bigotrin. And we have a new agent, andexanet alpha, which is a recombinant factor 10A, can be used to reverse rivaroxaban and apixaban in the event of life-threatening bleeding. Remember, you can do percutaneous left atrial appendage occlusion in at-risk AF patients who are thought to be at increased stroke risk and who cannot be anticoagulated. Catheter ablation may be reasonable in symptomatic patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction to reduce mortality and heart failure hospitalizations. In at-risk AF patients who have undergone coronary stenting, double therapy with clopidogrel and low-dose rivaroxaban, 15 milligrams a day, or dibigatran, 150 milligrams twice a day, is a reasonable way of providing coverage and avoiding triple therapy. Weight loss combined with risk factor modification is recommended for overweight and obese patients with AFib. Remember, this type of lifestyle maneuver can have a big effect on AF burden. And in patients with cryptogenic stroke in whom external ambulatory monitoring is inconclusive, and implantation of a cardiac monitor is reasonable to try to find subclinical AFib. So I think those are all very useful points from this latest update to the AFib guidelines. Last, quickly, I want to just mention this article that came out again this week in Jack. Alarucumab reduces total non-fatal cardiovascular events and fatal events. And you'll recall that the Odyssey trial was a study of over 18,000 patients They'd had an acute coronary syndrome. They were already on high-dose statins. They had elevated LDLs, and they were randomized to this PCXK9 agent, alarucumab, or a placebo. This article builds upon the prior publication. And what this article really focuses on is the fact that alarucumab, when added to high-dose statin, not only reduced first events, but second events, third events, and fourth events, this notion that the benefit of dramatic LDL lowering is cumulative over time. And in fact, if you look at the event-free survival curves, they start to diverge at about six months, and they continue to diverge out to the four years. So this article really helps us understand that if we are aggressive with managing these risk factors, in this case, particularly LDL in patients with an event. We not only prevent first events, but the watershed of benefit after that is dramatic. In fact, there were twice as many total events in Odyssey 
than first events. So I think as we get further along in preventive therapy in patients with coronary disease, we're going to see that the benefit over time just continues to be accumulated, and this is really good news for our patients. I thought this was a really great analysis, and I recommend it to you. So I want to thank you for listening to Eagle's Eye View. I recorded this on uh, January 28th, 2019. It's really a pleasure serving you in podcast format, giving you these weekly updates from acc.org. You can find the articles and the key points on the website. And you'll also find a new educational catalog featured on acc.org. It's under the Education and Meetings tab. Using this tool, you can sort educational offerings by various formats. And as you know, many of these are free. Find us online or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next week, I hope you have a good one. Thank you.